Hey, everybody, welcome back to Crafted on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our guest today is John Kimmich, who is the co-founder and head brewer of The Alchemist, which is one of the most historically important breweries in the world of modern craft beer. And today it is still certainly one of the best breweries in the craft world. John and his wife, Jen, opened The Alchemist in 2003. And in this very wide ranging conversation, John lays out an incredible history of the origins of The Alchemist, and the principles that continue to drive John and Jen today. Now, John and I talked for over two hours, and we actually were definitely nowhere near done by the end of things. And so we are actually going to take this tour de force of a conversation and split it into two parts. And so now here is part one of our conversation, and we will be airing part two one week from today. And so for now, here is part one of our conversation. And next week on Wednesday, we will be publishing part two. And as you'll hear in part two, we already have plans for a third conversation. So check out part two to learn more about that. So let's get to it. And here is John Kimmich. Well, John, how are you today and where are you today? Uh, I am doing great today. I'm, 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 I feel like I'm back from the dead after the last three weeks of, of battling illnesses. And I am sitting in my office at our Stowe facility and it is a gray, rainy day here in Vermont. Well, I was just in Stowe a few weeks ago and it was not rainy or gray at all. It was quite gorgeous. While I was in Stowe, I actually made it to The Alchemist four days in a oh, row. Good. Yeah, so that was uh, very fun too. First time there and uh, had a great time meeting some of the team there and getting a chance to sample for the first time a number of beers that I'd never had from you guys. So that was a very good trip. Oh, hey, that's great. Yeah, we like to keep some unique things available at the beer garden that you really can't get otherwise. Next really important question how are you feeling about the Steelers this year? <laughs> as long as we beat the Bengals in the opener, I don't really care what <laughs> happens from this point on for this season. Um, it's all great. Uh, yeah, you know? as a Steelers fan, uh, I mean, I've been a fan since I was born. So I've seen the ups and the downs. And uh, I'm under no illusion that we're going to um, do anything spectacular this year. But I got to say, in general... Um, I am feeling pretty good about the Steelers and, and the, the, the new youth that is on the team. We just need some offensive linemen that could actually stop people. So yeah. ideally, we're yeah. not going to win another game. And when the, when the <laughs> draft comes next spring, we're going to get some monster offensive linemen right out of college because it seems that that's really the only way you get offensive linemen. You know, you trade for somebody, they're not going to be good. There's a reason that team let them go. So that's that's yeah. like the one position that you really have to find people from the start. So 
Fingers crossed mm-hmm. the Steelers are going to have their first losing season in a long time this year, and we're, <laughs> we're going to pick up some decent talent. <laughs> well, as a Chicago Bears fan, the team that drafted Mitch Trubisky, yeah. I have to confess I couldn't wait f- to be past the Trubisky era in Chicago. But watching the game on Sunday, I was like, oh, no, is this one of those cases where somebody just needed some time and and he is going to sort of come around and just be a fantastic stealer? I'm not well, I'm not ready to wager heavily on this, but if it happened, um, I would feel some pangs of regret. No, I don't think it, you don't have to worry about it. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> okay. I think he's he's just holding holding a space until. uh until Kenny Pickett's ready to go. Well, a lot of Pittsburgh talk there, which is fitting. It's where you grew up. You are very much on record of talking about, you know, you were sort of the normal guy whose first introduction to beer was kind of some of the cheap and light stuff that we're all extremely familiar with. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your trajectory of going from normal guy who enjoyed beer into well founding the alchemist um well yeah i i would gladly talk about that i've a you know especially someone from my generation i think you'd find a pretty common thread there for a lot of uh brewers that are over the age of 50 Uh, because when i was young and starting to drink beer craft beer just didn't really exist you know i mean if you go all the way back you're talking about anchor being one of the very first back in 1976 and of course that was many many miles away from pittsburgh and a very small operation at the time so that really was not even in my world um my dad of course Everyone's dad tends to be their first influence on what they drink because it's what you're stealing out of his fridge when you're young. And so, yeah, that's what my dad's fridge was always loaded up with was those those large uh, macro brew, cheap, light American lager. Uh, my very first beer that I ever had was a Genesee Cream Ale. And I remember that very distinctly. Uh, I was probably... Oh, geez, that's probably six or seven when uh, I was a hot summer day and I was outside playing with my siblings. I'm the youngest of six. And it was my sister Beck in particular. I can remember standing in the basement and she pulled a beer out of the fridge. And that's back in the days when there were Dixie cup dispensers nailed to the wall. And so you pull that little wax Dixie cup out of there and she poured me some beer. And I remember it was just disgusting and, but it was ice cold. So it's funny because I can always remember uh, just being astounded that anybody would find a flavor like that to be thirst quenching. And I can remember my brothers coming in from mowing the lawn and just, they would, love chugging down one of those beers and it just always i just didn't get it um obviously it began to get it as i aged a little bit and i was no longer six uh but yeah i mean that is a that's a those are my roots lots of iron city 
lots of Genesee, uh, all of those regional beers that were in Western Pennsylvania at the time. So from there, this is the part that I'm curious about, right? How does one make the move from, again, an extremely kind of conventional experience and intro- by the way my first beer experience sounds very similar to your own and it was like th- why do people like this and so from there then what were the moves that got you thinking about the craft and how to do this in a different way with a bit more i don't know perhaps interest and experimentation in the rest well i th- I, I think it's you know, it's a, a natural progression. So I was in college. Uh, as things go, you start meeting new people, you start um, trying new things. And one of those things that we were trying uh, were different beers, you know. So I had friends that were older than me that started going out to the bars before I did. And it was generally in those bars. There was one in particular. So I went to Penn State University, which is where our son is now currently enrolled as well. And there was one bar in particular that was um, and is still there. I was just there actually this weekend having some drinks, which was fun. Um, It was called Zeno's. It still is called Zeno's. And in the early 90s, they had um, one of those first programs of the beers of the world. And you could get like a passport and start ticking off these beers that you tried. And if you had 100 beers, I don't know, you you got, I don't know, you got to put your card up on the wall or something silly like that, you know, <laughs> something meaningless to, to show that you had spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars at this bar. Smart. So this was my first exposure to imports in decent quality, you know, because they were going through a lot of the beer, they would get it relatively fresh and it was, you know, they were taking care of it. So early on, I can remember having things like Bass Ale and Sam Smith's and, and just these different German lagers and Doppelbox and very traditional uh, European imported beers. And these were the very early years of American craft. And so occasionally certain things would come across the board, like the Sierra Nevadas. Um, There were some local Pennsylvania beers that were kind of around. I remember this beer called Red Feather that uh, that came and went and these were the beers that first started opening my eyes to what was out there so it was one weekend that i was home visiting family for the weekend and one of my brother-in-laws used to homebrew back in the late 70s and early 80s with one of his friends and i can remember being very young you know 10 11 12 and they were they were brewing beer in their garage. Um, I never witnessed them brewing, but of course they would bring their bottles around. Todd would bring his bottles over to the house, and and people would try them. But but it was those days when of exploding bottles and overprimed beers, and people loved to make fun of my brother in law for the exploding beers and the you know 
all the failures. The, a lot of times people would just joke about the failures, but but it definitely stuck in my brain. And so when I was home this weekend in particular, um, I came across his uh, old dog-eared copy of Charlie Papazian's homebrew book. Hmm. And the moment that I picked that book up and started reading it, something uh, clicked in my brain. It was fascinating to me. So this was my junior year of college. Uh, I was a business logistics major at Penn State, um, being told that I had to network and yeah. go meet these guys in suits and put on a suit and, and get ready for the corporate world. And that that just wasn't happening. There was, aside from my beer world being expanded, my I was expanding my mind in many ways. And um, through these experiences, what I did know was that I was not cut out for putting on a suit and being a part of that corporate machine and putting my head down and, and that's my life. Um, so I knew that that was not the direction I wanted to go. Of course, that probably wasn't what my dad wanted to hear because he was the one pushing me to get a suit and cut my hair and straighten up and start focusing. I got a career to build and this and that. But I just knew in my gut that my path was not that. So uh, when I read this book and it was opening my eyes to what is out there and then it really motivated me to start digging into this. So I discovered this at a crucial point in my education because I had to, you know, I'm getting a degree in business and and so I got to choose a path. I knew that my major would help me, uh, but that was not going to be the end game. So I started taking coursework that was a much broader focus, whereas most people in my major were taking their core classes and then building upon those core classes. I identified which classes I needed to satisfy my degree, but then those other classes I wanted to spread out as much as I could. So I started taking classes in small business, entrepreneurship, um, which in those years, they it was hard to find. Uh, you go to business school now, and my mm -hmm. gosh, it's that's what it's all about. So I really had to pick and choose and, and find these things that would teach me what I wanted to know. Um, but even still, you know, it was ahead of its time. They, they, it wasn't available. So basically I would go home on the weekends whenever I did my brother-in-law, we would coordinate and he would buy the ingredients and I'd go home and we'd brew beer together. And I did that a couple of times. And every time I did it, I just, I really felt like I was finding my path. And I realized, you know, so then I began writing my, you know, everybody has to do their senior capstone research project. And 
I was dreading that. But then all of a sudden, I had found a topic and it was like, oh, right, this is a direction that I can go and something I'm enthusiastic about, something I'm interested in. And so that's exactly what I did. And it was funny. I'd like to tell the story that when, um, you know, everybody's assigned a, a, an advisor in their freshman year, <laughs> uh, which is funny because um, if I was in school now, as I advise my son, uh, be in touch with that person all the time. Stop in, let them know who you are. Just it is an incredible source of information and direction. I, of course, was the opposite mind of that. I wanted nothing to do with it. I was on my own. I didn't, again, these, this, this guy would have tried pushing me in a different direction. So when I finally did sit down with my advisor, which you had to do at least once before you graduated, it, <laughs> it was literally the first time I had ever sat down with an advisor. And I'm sitting in this big, fancy, dark office and the head of the department is flipping through my transcripts. And uh, he says, boy, you sure took the minimum in logistics. And I said, well, yeah, I said, I have, I have no intent on having a career in logistics. I said, I want to be self-employed and this is what I'm interested in. So, I mean, that was, I think, my last semester of college which is kind of preposterous. But at the same time, it, it is what it is. I mean, that was my path. So I ended up writing my senior project on the on the evolution of the, the brewing industry um, post prohibition. And through my research and writing of this project, I've just learned so much and, and kind of got this overview of positives and pitfalls of owning and operating a brewery. But of course, you're, you're basically looking at large regional breweries and that kind of thing. The breweries that were really affected by prohibition, the big guys survived. Those medium regional guys maybe survived, but the vast majority of them went out of business and all of the small producers went out of business. Uh, you know, pre-prohibition, there were thousands of, of small um, immigrant-led brewery businesses. That were, it was a vibrant, amazing scene. But of course, prohibition and then World War II on top of it just decimated that. So coming out of World War II, it was just the big breweries that made it. And of course, they went on to dominate for the next several decades. John, let me ask, I don't actually know this historical part of the record in a way, it would. It, in a way, it's surprising to me that the biggest survived, because in a way they would have seemingly been the easiest targets by the government to sort of put the clamps on and shut down. Whereas all of these hundreds and hundreds of tiny little breweries, in a way, it would seem like would have been harder to enforce. So what's your what is the historical record or what's your take on how the largest were the only ones that managed to survive? Well, the largest that survived did so by producing non-alcoholic beverages. And they were the ones that were able to pivot and have the infrastructure to produce these and distribute these and actually limp along and keep things going. The enforcement 
the enforcement was for real. You know, you <laughs> if you were going to be bootlegging alcohol during prohibition, I mean, the FBI, everybody, I mean, the government was was all about taking down operations like that. So the only ones that really survived were the ones that could make a legitimate alternative beverage for the masses and at least keep the lights on in in the operation. And that's basically what happened. And we went from many, many breweries down to literally a handful of breweries being remaining, much like the regional breweries throughout history and not necessarily as a direct result of prohibition. I'm talking about in the 40s and 50s and 60s, a lot of these medium-sized regional breweries found it very difficult to survive because they weren't they were they were not big enough to really withstand major bumps and they weren't small enough to pivot quickly and the market changed and those are the breweries that tend to go the interesting thing is things haven't changed that much i think we all expected more breweries to close as a result as a result of covid I think the only reason they didn't was because of all of the money that was infused into the economy by the federal government. So you took a lot of breweries that maybe were teetering on the edge and you propped them up for a few more years. I would imagine that in the you know not too distant future, you're going to start seeing some of this happen. So the breweries I'm talking about are the kind of breweries that and you see it happening right now. Um, let's say a brewery is making 50,000 barrels a year, which puts them firmly in the um, large regional brewery category. You now have a brewery that as demand goes down in the markets that they are currently in, they just enter a new market. And it's uh, basically a Band-Aid. You're hitting a new market. There's new interest in your beer. Uh, you'll sell it for a short time. But the same forces that caused you to move to a new market are the same forces that are going to eventually take you down. So I think I don't think it's any secret that right now, we have never had historically more breweries than we do right now. And with that said, we have never had such an immense selection of garbage and mediocre beer as we do right now. The, the, the excitement of craft beer caused the numbers of breweries to balloon. Um, you have guys with money coming in with no knowledge of brewing, with dollar signs in their eyes, wanting to hit the new trend and to hit it big and maybe sell the whole thing and, and make your money and out you go. So you get these douchebag types that are in it for the wrong reasons. And breweries like that, it's just a matter of time. It really is. I think the flip side of everyone being excited about craft beer is that you then get a more educated customer base 
uh, they start to learn the difference between great beer and mediocre beer. And it is just a matter of time until people start turning on those breweries. Uh, you see it now with, with the younger generation's focus on cocktails and alternative alcoholic beverages that are super accessible and easy to drink and the, you know, the club sodas and all of that. You know, the alcohol business has all kinds of trends historically. You know, you go back to Zima back in the late 80s and early 90s. Things hit hot and then they go away. The one thing that does not really go away is anything that is extremely well-crafted. The, the top examples of basically anything aren't going to go anywhere, you know, Trends happen because of a need, uh, because of people's wants and desires. And that want and desire isn't going to go away, per se. But if the market's flooded with choices, that's fine for a while because you'll, you'll kind of fill that need. But as that need decreases, people will stick with the brands that they know are high quality. And the stuff that is not just dies on the vine. And you can see that by going into any six-pack shop, well, four-pack shop now, you know. Um, you can see that going into any craft beer retailer and just walk down the aisle, spend five minutes in, that, in those coolers and look at what's on the shelf, pick them up, look at the dates on the bottom. And in five, ten minutes, you could go through there and pretty much start predicting the future. If you're seeing beer with a date that's been like this has been sitting here for a minute a minute jeez i mean i go into local stores and i'll see i'll see local breweries with beers that are six eight months old sitting on the shelf and it's just a matter of time until that beer gets pulled from that shelf and returned to the brewer uh of course being in the industry i also have access to information that a lot of people don't uh, like our compost company that comes and takes our brewery waste. They are now increasingly in the business of destroying beer. And there are local businesses that I get reports from my compost guy of trailer loads of beer coming back and needing to be destroyed. And these are from breweries that people would never guess that that would be that brewery. When I start seeing stuff like that, oh boy, does that uh, raise my eyebrows there. You, you get uh, kind of a peek into what might be going on at some of these other businesses. And to be quite honest with you, I have a really hard time feeling any sympathy for an operation like this because... I see, I see people running their business like there's no end in sight. We're going to get bigger and bigger. We're going to keep selling this beer and uh, we're awesome. <laughs> and, you know, that is, uh, they're, they're blind. They're blind to the reality of what is really going on. Um, increased sales and a sales team that spreads out across the country and sells your beer does not mean that your beer is great, it means that you have a sales team out there pushing your beer into new markets. 
big deal. It's a short-term gain and it's going to be a long-term loss. Much like those regional breweries that went out of business in the middle of the 20th century, it's very much like that. Uh, and so for us at The Alchemist, we have been aware of that situation from day one. And when all those years when we had lines out the door and people are telling us we need to make more, if we were sitting in the position of having a bunch of investors telling us what to do, mm-hmm. that very well yep. may have been us by somebody else forcing us to make a move that we didn't want to make. Uh, Jen and I, from day one, stuck to our guns and never took on investors at you know what some people would think would be at the detriment of our business. But, you know, again, they don't know what they're talking about. We do. Um, and I, I've been watching this, these trends for decades and studying these trends. And so I know that what must, what goes up must come down. So for us, we have a pretty unique situation where we don't have to listen to anybody else. There's no investors forcing us telling us to increase production. They want more profits, this, that, and the other thing. Um, For Jen and I, we have no plans of selling The Alchemist. Um, We've been, (laughs) I mean, for years, people have been offering to buy us. Um, And at times, when, (laughs) when you're at a low point and you're buried in stress, and you're working your butt off, that may seem like an option. Um, but there have been times too where, you know, you really do feel like, oh my God, I just can't, I can't take this. You know, what would selling our brewery look like? And all I have to do, all we have to do basically is go for a nice long hike in the woods in the right state of mind and think about these things. And you envision Okay, you sign those papers, your bank account just exploded. What does the next day look like? And for Jen and I, who each of us has had a job since we were teenagers, um, a lot of times had two, three jobs at a time, uh, we work that is in our DNA and we don't have jobs. Our work is our life. Um, and it is what gives us so much satisfaction. And at the end of the day, neither one of us could ever imagine being retired. Uh, the idea of being retired is I, I don't get it, you know. We both, within months, would be like, okay, let's start a business. And the idea of that, of selling an incredible business that we have built from the ground up and maintained 100% control, to then just go and try to do something else, it, it's, it's idiotic. Uh, we absolutely love what we do. We are super passionate about it. It enables us to do so much more other than brewing beer. 
that it hits everything that you could ever want. If you ask somebody when they're just starting out in life, what would your ideal be? Um, of course, people want to make money, this, that, and the other thing, but everybody will say, I want to do something that I'm passionate about, that I love to do. And that is exactly what we have. And so, really, we decided a while back, it's like, that's, <laughs> that's who, this is what we do. We wake up, we love having this, we love having the, not the power, um, the, the freedom, the freedom, the cachet that owning the alchemist brings. You step into any situation and you have this business legitimacy that when you talk about something, people listen because they see what we've built. They see how we've affected our community and how we continue to do these things. And uh, that goes a long way. And that's super important to us because we can get involved in so many different things. And when people are like, oh, you guys are the alchemist. It's a big difference than like, oh, who are you two? What do you do? Oh, well, we used to run this business and then we sold it. Now we do this, that and the other thing. You know, so really, we both envision ourselves doing this until we're very, very old. And, mm -hmm. you know, if, if if it comes to it and and our son has no interest in the family business and so be it, the company ends when when we die. But in the meantime, you wake up in the morning and you've got a full day of things to do. You've got exciting opportunities. You meet people because of the work. You get involved with other industries and businesses, you know, the being the certified B Corp and all of those things. It opens you up to this whole world of different industries that are doing really cool things. And at the end of the day, that's what feeds our passion and gets us excited. Are we excited and thrilled every day when the minutia of running a business comes up? No, of course not. You know, but at the same time, there's nobody telling us what to do when we wake up in the morning. And, and that is priceless. You know, we talked a bit earlier about the very much the relatively recent rise uh, in sort of entrepreneurship as kind of a cultural phenomenon. And now, yeah, if you're doing a business degree, you're going to find all these different courses in entrepreneurship and the rest. That is a very different situation than it was even maybe 15 years ago, let alone 20, 30 years ago. But one of the things I think many people who own a company probably get asked, like, it is one of the number one questions, right? Like, what's your plan? You looking to sell? You like, you know, what's the exit strategy? And I think I, I couldn't agree more with everything you kind of said on that front. Like, if you have the freedom to pursue a vision of things, your vision of things with passion and feel like every day you're able to try to put good things out into the world and kind of do them the right way as you see that, what is up with this obsession of the sale? Like, why would I want to sell this? And it sounds like that's something that very much resonates with you. 
Um, because the idea of like lots of money in a bank account, but what are you doing the next day? Yeah, <laughs> it's there's of course. And I think that's just kind of the exuberance of youth as well. I can remember being in my late teens and early 20s and being like, oh, boy, I could totally be retired. If I had money, yeah, I'd just do whatever. It's like, yeah, because you you got no, you don't know shit when you're young. You don't understand all of those things. And we consider ourselves so fortunate um, to be in the situation that we're in. I would never use the word luck. And it, it kind of annoys the shit out of me when people say, oh, you guys are so lucky. It's like, luck. It's like, please. <laughs> we've been, we've dedicated our lives to this and have been focused on this since, since we were 16. You know, in one way or another, we didn't know what it was going to be at that point, but we knew it was going to be something. So, um, luck is wrong. It is, uh, we're very fortunate. Because we are where we are because, A, uh, an exorbitant amount of hard work. Um, but again, it also bothers me when people say, oh, just work hard and you'll get ahead. Uh, I, I know countless people that work their fingers to the bone that don't get ahead for one reason or another. So when I say we're very fortunate that's where that comes in. Uh, on top of the hard work, we have also put ourselves in extreme risk. Uh, we have taken big risks throughout the years of running the, the Alchemist. Risk number one is having no investors because it really is a sink or swim. Um, but some of the other risks are, you know, at least three times we leveraged everything we had built up until a certain point to get to go to that next level and could have lost it all at any one of those moments. So aside from just the hard work, you have to be willing to risk it all. Um, risk is what enables those big jumps. Um, and with that said, you can't just take stupid risks and go for it without thinking it through. Um, so it also takes a ridiculous amount of patience that you have to not rush those risks. They have to be very calculated, well-timed, well thought out. Um, you don't just throw caution to the wind and go for it. it. You have to be smart about it too. So there's so much so many aspects to building a successful business. And I think that if you talk to any small entrepreneur that has found success, I think you would find a lot of these common themes mentioned again and again. Uh, there are plenty of hardworking people that aren't willing to take a risk. And, you know, you, that you, you might be safe, but you're not going to ever be able to take those big leaps. So I want to bring us back to that senior capstone paper and project. At that time, as a business major, were you very confident in the 
total addressable market for craft beer. Did you know, did you believe this is a monster opportunity from a business point of view? Or was it more at the time like, well, I'm not really sure, but man, I think we can make something really, really good and and probably get a business up around that. Um, well, I would say as an answer to that question, I I can remember actually while I was in college, um, my sister, Rachel, picked me up once and brought me home for something. And we were talking about all of this stuff. And I was, you know, I was in the in the midst of a lot of these changes and, and ideas and what I want to do for a living. And my father um, was a corporate man. He was he was uh, in investments. He was a stockbroker. And his father was a butcher. My grandfather was a baker on my mother's side. My grandfather on my father's side was a butcher. And so for my dad to go to college and get that kind of job, that was very important to him because he was breaking out of that blue collar atmosphere that he was raised in and he was going to college and he had achieved um, what he achieved. And, and that's amazing. And him making that choice is what got me through college. So to say that there was some disagreement between the two of us would be an understatement. I think that maybe what he saw was a backward step on my part. But for me, it was so vitally important that whatever I do for a living, I needed to create something. I needed to have something tangible at the end of the day. I could not do what he did for a living. I cannot put on a suit, be there nine to five. And at the end of the day, I've, what have I done? You know, I need something sitting in front of me to, to say, this is what you did today. And I can remember having this conversation with my sister and saying, you know, Rachel, I, I, I need this. You know, I, I would be a carpenter. I would be a lot of different things. Um, I felt this connection to my grandparents and, and the craft that they were in. Um, I, I never knew my paternal grandfather. He died when my dad was 12. So, you know, there's a whole layer of things going on there, too, in my dad's psyche and what drove him. Um, for me, I can remember, you know, my, my maternal grandfather died when I was about, I think I was six or seven. But I have very um, definite memories of stepping through the door of his bakery and those sights and the smells and looking in that case, it was... It was like art, uh, beautiful, beautiful, edible art. And that really struck a chord with me from an early age. And so having that direction, uh, when I discovered craft beer, it's interesting because I have a college friend that... This was probably 
1991, maybe, after my sophomore year, or even 92 or 93 in that, that, that early time. And I told him what my interest was. And he said, well, you better hurry up because that trend's going to be over quick. You better, you better get in before it's over. And I remember just thinking, <laughs> you're nuts. If you think this is uh, a quick trend, I think, I think you're nuts. You know, uh, this is the time, the days when a lot of things were evolving and coming out of these dark ages. Uh, case in point, bakeries, uh, bread, artisanal bread. You could name a, a half a dozen different things that were seeing a, uh, a revival of people focusing on quality over quantity. Uh, so did I see craft beer as becoming what it has today? I don't know about that, but I certainly recognize the opportunity that this is something that you could carve out your own little niche and have a really nice living and do something that is fun and exciting and and uh, satisfying. How'd you settle on the name The Alchemist? The name The Alchemist came out of um, actually uh, the original artwork and coaster work for the Vermont Pub and Brewery, which was uh, my first paid brewing job was when I was the head brewer at the Vermont Pub and Brewery in the mid 90s. And it was one afternoon sitting there having beers with my late friend and mentor, Greg Noonan, that was uh, a, a very, uh, one of the early pioneers of craft beer and very highly regarded member of the craft beer community. Um, and he is, he's the one that I searched out to learn how to make beer. Um, and so we developed our professional relationship and a friendship, but we were sitting there having beers one afternoon and I'm just fiddling with my coaster. And I see in there, um, the symbol that we now use for the alchemist. And I said, Greg, what is this tiny little symbol? And he said, that is the alchemic symbol for fermentation. And that just it was like a bell ringing in my head. Like that was the coolest thing. I couldn't even believe that he had researched that and found that and had just incorporated it into his logo in such a subtle, tiny way. It was kind of a throwaway. And that just stuck with me for years. And, and Jen, uh, we met at the Vermont pub and brewery. That's, she was working there. That's where we met. And, and I can remember just, you know, I mean, that just kind of happened. And it was like, wow, that is cool. That symbol, that should be the symbol of our brewery someday. And then the name, The Alchemist, just blossomed out of there. It wasn't until after that that we found out that there was actually a book called The Alchemist. And of course, everybody <laughs> over the years is, you know, we've given us copies of that book, asked us if that's where we got the name. And it, it isn't. Um but that's fine. It's a cool book. It's got a it's got a great story. It's got a great moral to the story that certainly applies to um, to life in general. Uh, so the alchemist just kind of blossomed out of that symbol. And for years, uh, when we were writing a business plan, I mean, 
that was 1996, five and six. And we got married in 1997 and we didn't open our brewery until the fall of 2003. So those years in between of working and writing business plans and, and putting numbers together and yearly projections and costs and everything. I mean, just that is all we did. I mean, we worked and we researched and planned and wrote business plans and our total focus was someday we together are going to open our own uh, brewery. So when you say 1995, 1996, up until 2003, you're working at, to figure out the business of your own brewery, but you are brewing at Vermont Public? Well, it, uh, it, I was the head brewer at the Vermont Pub and Brewery for from 95, 96, and into early 97. Uh, Jen and I got married and started moving around the country. We moved to Jackson, Wyoming. We lived in Idaho for a time. We moved back to Boston when we thought we were ready to start thinking about opening our business. Um, I brewed here or there in between. Um, if I didn't have a legitimate brewing job, I was home brewing. Um, if I didn't have a legitimate brewing job, I was working in hotels as a bellman. Um, I hated waiting tables, but I liked cash tips. Jen was great at waiting tables and tending bar. So she ended up, that would be a lot of her line of work. So through those years, it was, those were work, work, work years. I mean, that is all we did to try to save money with the goal of someday starting our own operation. Uh, if we did have money to go out to dinner, we were, we weren't just going out to dinner and getting loaded and eating. We were going to places that we wanted to check out. We wanted to see how they ran, what cut, what's their menu look like? How do they execute? Is their food any good? What's the vibe of the place? All of these different things. If we had a job, irregardless of what it was, we were, What's our boss like? What's it like to work for this person? What's the vibe of this place? What could you do to make a business run better? I mean, this is, that's just life. I mean, that's just what we were focused on all the time. So even when we weren't working in the industry, we always felt like we were learning and making progress. Um, you know, with that said, there were some dark moments in there where there would be time where I hadn't brewed in a while and, and you start feeling like you're losing, you're getting off track and hmm. you could get discouraged by that, but that was extremely motivating for, for myself in particular. Um, that was not going to happen. I knew guys that had brewed in the early nineties, mid nineties, and then they they drop out of the industry and they start doing this or that or, whatever. They got into different craft type businesses, but I knew my passion was making beer. So, uh, I did whatever it took, you know, no job was beneath me by any means. And Jen, I mean, geez, she scrubbed toilets when we were in Jackson, she was a housekeeper and waiting tables and like a third job. I was answering phones at a hotel and working at the ski resort or working, anything, any job we could get, you know, 
we didn't really care. We needed to make money. We needed to have jobs and we needed to work toward our goal. Okay, tangent. Are you a skier or snowboarder? Jen and I are both avid snowboarders. Um, I started snowboarding in the late 80s, early 90s. I started off as a skier. Once I saw my first snowboarder on the mountain, I sold all of my ski gear and I bought a snowboard and I never looked back. Uh, With that said, we are both avid Nordic skiers. So we spend the vast majority of our winters now um, out in the woods with our dogs. Uh, Here in particular at Stowe, uh, the corporate world has basically ruined our mountain. Um, they have expanded it. They've built these enormous lodges. Um, in my opinion, they took so much of what made Stowe so unique and special, and they've ruined it, and they've tried to make it like like it is out west. And now we have so many people coming to this mountain that you can the locals can hardly even get on the mountain. So in that sense, it's discouraging, but at the same time, uh, we own a business in this town, and you certainly can't complain about customers coming to town. So one of the things I'm wondering about as you know, this period, 1995 to 2003, you talked about you and Jen are living in a number of different places. Was there a thought in that period and living in different places? Were you also kind of scoping out, would this be a good spot to open a brewery? Or did you always think that would happen back in Vermont? Uh, 100% we were were open to our business being in other places. Uh, Of course, while we were living in Jackson, it was like, boy, we could could do our place here. But, you know, we just, Jackson was great, but it wasn't home. Um, Jen is born and raised in Vermont. Uh, I was drawn to Vermont something, the powers that be drew me to Vermont. And so that had a very special place in my heart. We lived in Boston for over two years and we were looking at retail locations in Boston. We thought, hey, this is, we have to be in a city. We should be in an urban area. We shouldn't be out in the middle of nowhere. This is the way it should be. Uh, we quickly started evolving out of that ideas. And then, of course, the moment that 9-11 happened, that was kind of the big smack in the head, like, oh, boy, city. Eh." You know, and so we found ourselves, even when we were living in the city, we found ourselves leaving the city on weekends to go visit friends up here in New England. And so it just, it, it was a slow realization that, City is not the place for us. Vermont is the place for us. We both missed it. Jen missed it. I missed it. And so we moved back to Vermont with the uh, with the goal of opening our facility somewhere here in Vermont. And, and even then, once we were back here, we looked at a lot of different places. We were looking at places in Burlington, in Essex, in Montpelier, lots of different places. Um, and it wasn't until one day... We drove past what used to be our pub, our original brewery, and there was a sign in the window that said closing. And I tracked down the landlord and reached out and told him what we wanted to do. And he was hesitant. He didn't want his building to be converted into a restaurant. And we managed to convince him otherwise. And 
and the rest is history. So 2003 is our official year of the opening of The Alchemist. (laughs) There's a lot of this story still that we could dive into, but to keep us moving a little bit, when do you first start thinking about what eventually gets called Hetty Topper? The name of Hetty Topper actually came to be in that summer before we opened. You know, we had found our location. Uh, I quit my job in June. We were hoping to have our brew pub open maybe August or September. Uh, So the beginning of June, I quit my job. So we cut our income in half. I was at that space. I mean, God, constantly. I would go home to sleep. Other than that, I was in the space doing demolition and construction. Uh, Jen was working a full-time job. When she wasn't working, she was there with me doing demolition and construction and the financials. I mean, I cannot stress enough what an amazing partnership we have and our strengths, um, how they complement each other. If, If I didn't have Jen, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation and vice versa. She would be in some other industry thriving because she's so talented. Um, But the two of us together, our focus was one. So working all summer, uh, August 1st or August 15th or so comes around, Jen quits her job. So now there is no money coming in and the race is on. The clock is ticking until we can open and start having income coming in. And of course, uh, things took longer than we wanted it to, which is inevitable. Our opening night was November 29th of 2003. So I had not had income in five months, um, Jen in going on three. So to say things were tight is an understatement. Uh, I was basically living on ramen and sandwiches from the from the local deli uh we would work 18 hour days go home collapse get right back up and go right back at it um so we opened the friday after thanksgiving in 2003 the night we opened up or that night that thanksgiving night and i'm not exaggerating we had less than $100 in our bank account. If we were not a success that next day, we were going to be out of business and in debt. Um, thankfully, uh, we were busy and we continued to be busy. Uh, the, the layer of this that has thus far not been discussed was I was pretty darn sure that Jen was pregnant. I was pretty, pretty confident and she was like, I don't, I, she's like, I can't even think about that. We need to get this place open. And I said, okay, that's fine. So we were open Friday night. We were busy as could be. We actually slept in the brewery um, on the pallets of barley. And because we slept for about four hours. And the next morning, I said, okay, we're open. And I handed her a pregnancy test and I was in the basement in the, in the office 
And I said, here you go. I said, go take this test. I said, don't look at it until you come back down here so we can see it together. And she leaves the room. She comes back about a minute later and she walks through like this, holding it up in tears. And I could see that it was positive. And uh, that was a curveball for sure. Um, So just like that, not only did we have a new business, but we had a baby on the way. And to say it was overwhelming is an understatement. But at the same time, I knew in my gut that this was the best thing that could have ever happened to us. And in retrospect, it really was. Uh, So, yeah, just like that, we're open and Jen's pregnant and we have no insurance and we're just working our brains out. So, wow, you know, nine months into our business, it's, it's, uh, Charlie was born that summer on July 9th. So not even July 9th, my birthday. Good. So, so (laughs) seven months into our business, we now had a baby and I mean, God, the next few years were an absolute blur. Um, we had no childcare. We couldn't afford childcare. We didn't really want childcare. We were determined to not have to do that. And again, when I talk about sacrifices and hard work, boy, that's right up there because I would get up. I would be in that brewery brewing by five in the morning. I'd be done by noon. Jen would come in, hand me Charlie. She would work until midnight. And that's what we did for years. We were like two ships passing in the night. Um, But Charlie had a parent home every day, all day, and didn't know daycare, none of these things. And so, you know, I I don't know if I, I, I know I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. You know, it was extremely difficult and extremely rewarding all at the same time. So there you go. (laughs) the first year was chaos i kept thinking while you were saying all this back to how we kind of opened the conversation with people being like man guys really lucky i was kind of thinking like this is what luck looks like oh how many like what you just described i can't even tell you how many young people would come in and be like oh i want this you guys are so lucky to have this and it's like (laughs) sit Uh, down let uh me talk to you about luck (laughs) You know, and uh, and so yep. we see that we see that a lot. A lot of young people that I they see something, they want it, and their wealthy parents give them the loans, and off they go, and they do their thing. And quite often, these are the breweries that suck. You know, because nobody ever told them that they were anything but awesome. You're awesome. Everything you do is awesome. Here, go do awesome things. And it's like, well, okay. <laughs> I hate to tell you, but you're not that awesome and your beer is pretty terrible. So, do you get hit up a lot by people who are like, "Hey John, want to talk? D- really interested in opening a my own brewery? Is this this is your life? This is <laughs> this is like 10 times a day or countless. What are some of the things you say? A, a lot of the things that I just told you, uh, get busy, get to work and start learning. 
Because if you think that this happens overnight, you're nuts. Can you open a brewery? Sure, anybody can go open a brewery, but can you open an amazing brewery and make world-class beer? And, you know, I, I generally give, I generally try to discourage them of it because, again, a lot of these people are, are, have nothing but yes men around them. And it's like, if people, what do you think of my beer? I'll say, you can give me your beer, but I'm not going to just lie. Like, if I think your beer sucks, I'm going to tell you your beer sucks. So, keep that in mind if you're going to give me your beer. I'm not going to be a jerk about it, but I'm not going to just tell you what you want to hear. Um, and, you know, we don't get that so much anymore in the early years. Of course, you get people that would just be, so. you know, how many emails we got? Hey, could you uh, tell me, give me the recipe for Henny Topper? I want to brew that at home. And it's just like... You know, it's laughable. It's like, of course not. You know, I'll give you advice on sound brewing practices, but I'm never going to go into details. You, you need to figure out the details. You need to go through the trial and error, figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And you need to figure out if you even have a palate that is worthy of this business. Again, I mean, countless breweries, their beer is garbage. But to them, it's amazing. They're killing it. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> I don't know who's buying your beer more than once, but good luck, you know. And some people are humble about it, but most are arrogant about it. And so be it, you know. Time will tell what happens to these, to these businesses. You have talked about great beer versus mediocre beer. And I would actually love to hear you try to tease this out and explain how you see the distinction and how maybe we ought to see the distinction. I would never give specific examples, um, but a lot of that conversation also comes down to some pretty hard to define um, parameters that that it it's hard to define what makes the difference between a world-class chef at a Michelin starred restaurant versus somebody that is just making food and not even with those parameters, but everything in between to, to quantify what a person's palate is telling them is a very difficult thing. And every brewer will tell you, oh, I just make the beers that I like to drink. And that's right. what I do. Well, that's great. Um, but the, the thing that's so hard to pin down is when your, what your palate is telling you translates on a large scale to other people. Um, what is it about the beer that I brew that resonates with people? Somebody that doesn't know a thing about beer, but picks up one of these beers and tries it. What is it about it that resonates with them? And they instantly recognize something that they enjoy the drinking. That is a, that's a tricky thing because just about anybody could sit down with me or anybody else 
and I could lead them to say basically whatever I want them to say. The power of suggestion is a very real thing. And so when I do have a moment of one-on-one with somebody and I can take it as a teaching moment, uh, all I can do is taste something with them and describe to them what I find appealing and taste something that I don't care for and explain to them what it is about that that I don't enjoy. At the same time, you could take those two same examples and have somebody else explain that to them. And if their palate doesn't taste what my palate tastes, it's kind of pointless. And what I've learned over the years is there's so much, um, is it physiological? Is that the right word? Um, Physical traits and characteristics that an individual human has. They literally are not tasting what I'm tasting. That's right. Yeah. So when you're sitting down with somebody like that, that may have a limited palate, you have to approach it from a different direction because I could be describing flavors to them that they're just like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't taste that at all. And they'll be drinking a beer and they'll be like, oh, you got to try. I mean, hundreds of times people have given me a beer and be like, this, I can't get heady topper, but this is the beer I reach for when I can't get heady topper. And I'll take a sip of it and it makes me want to punch myself in the face. And it's like, how could, how could this be the substitute? This is what carries you between the two. Like that you even, that these are even in the same discussion is kind of crazy at times. And so when it comes down to that, if you get to the point where you just got to throw your hands up and it's like, I, you can't, unless I sit down with every individual in a one-on-one yeah. situation and try to teach them things, um, it's almost impossible. But I can tell you that so many people that I sit down with and I taste and I go through things and I explain what they're tasting, I try to do it without doing that subliminal plant this, oh, do you taste this? Taste this, yeah. you know? I mean, because literally I could make something up and be like, do you taste this? They'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do taste that. It's like, well, I just made that up. You know, so it, it's a weird thing. It, it's 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 beneficial. I can talk very broad, general things. I can teach somebody the difference between bitterness and astringency and totally rock their world. And then they come back to me six months later and they're like, you've ruined beer for me. Like now, hmm. now mm-hmm. that I know what astringency is. They're like, so many beers are astringent. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, welcome to my world. You know, and people, I want so desperately to find things that I can praise. Yeah. And I start to get self-conscious at times because there is so little out there that I truly deem worthy of praise that you start feeling like, I don't want to come off as all arrogant and, oh, I only like my beer. Like, that's the opposite. I'm desperate to find other things that I love. Because quite honestly, I love drinking my beer. 
but man, I want to, I want to drink, I want to experience other things and be wild. Like I am when I drink my own beer and it's hard to find. It's really hard to find. So can we stay on this very specific topic of bitterness versus astringency? Sure. Talk a bit about that. Uh, well, it is. I, I'd like you to ruin beer for all of us. <laughs> Again, it, it, it's a it's a tricky thing because so many people don't know the difference. And, you know, there is now the Internet that gives people this false sense of knowledge. Uh, you'll see guys that review beer and they'll say one thing or another. And I know they're totally full of shit. And they've reviewed 6,000 beers. Oh, I'm an expert. I've done this, that, and the other thing. I'm a level three beer tasting douchebag. It, it doesn't matter. Everything that you're basing your knowledge on is faulty from the start. So you'd have to try all 6,000 of those beers again after I sit down and talk to you because, because I don't believe that you know what you're talking about. But in their mind, they're more of an expert than me to the point where they will sit down and review and maybe say some things that are just like preposterous and, and off base. Like, I'm fine. If, if you don't care for what we do, I get it because our beer is not for everybody, nor would I ever, ever want our beer to be for everybody. But astringency versus bitterness. Basically, it is this. When you are drinking, especially hoppy beers, but any beer. Astringency and bitterness are very different things. They are derived from different parts of the brewing process. When you drink my beers, you take that initial sip, it washes over your palate, you swallow it. And for those next 30 seconds, it is dancing on your palate and doing what it does. The bitterness of my beers is mid-tongue, tip of tongue, roof of mouth up front you take that sip and it tastes amazing and it continues to taste amazing and the flavors change and evolve and you taste layers of flavor but it is all up front and crisp and bright and present astringency is the opposite astringency is a perceived as a bitterness but it's all in the back of the palate <laughs> Back there, in the back of your throat, way back on your tongue, plummeting down your throat. If that is where you're tasting bitterness, you're not tasting bitterness, you're tasting astringency. There are any number of places that astringency can be brought into the, into the process, but generally it's derived in the mash tun. The moment I teach somebody the difference between that, and it's usually you have to have one of our beers and then whatever garbage they brought me telling me that this is just like our beer. And then I'll try that side by side and I'll say, okay, now take a sip of this and tell me where, where do you perceive bitterness? And almost every time they're like, oh yeah. <clears throat> oh, it's all way back there. It's like, okay, now go out into the world and just start thinking about that one thing when you drink beer. And that's generally, that's a big one. They come back and they're like, Oh my God, you were right. <laughs> it's like, Oh boy, that's weird that I would know what I'm talking about. You know? Um, 
But it's uh, that alone. I mean, that's just one tiny aspect to beer that it kills me. I'll read a review. And of course, you know, you can't get too bent out of shape because what you're reading is an enthusiastic new member in the community of craft beer. And I would never want to stifle somebody's enthusiasm for something that they have discovered and that they're interested in. But at the same time, if somebody with a shit palate has that person and says, this is an amazing beer, drink this. This is the benchmark of this style. And it's a piece of garbage. From that day on, that's their education. That's what they base all beers up against. And it's a shame. It's a real disservice to that person because now everything they're approaching is completely flawed from the start. And they'll build everything they know based on on a, a flawed sense of taste. It's very interesting hearing you talk about this because on the one hand, you speak about these things in extremely sort of objective terms, right? Great beers versus mediocre beers. You know, some of the things you like versus the garbage that people bring you. And so, and yet we've identified some uh, objective subjectivity in this as well. If there is, right, we've probably read some of these things about the presence or lack of a certain uh, genome will literally mean that we are going to taste certain things differently. So it's very This is a fun and funny conversation about some very objective and strong claims being made while you also recognize a certain subjectivity to this. And I think I'm really interested in the question of like helping people think through or distinguish really good craft products from mediocre craft products. And in some ways, I'm like, well... What is the tiebreaker here? Is it is it the market? Like, is it, well, if a brewery has a bunch of people that keep coming back and purchasing that and they're doing well financially, do we ultimately have to kind of default there as a metric for like, I guess this is good beer in that what, like, what does that even mean? And if the, if the metric is what resonates with people over the long haul or for kind of the long haul, (laughs) it gets kind of complicated. Without a doubt. Um, There are very famous and very popular breweries out there that make beer that I just can't stand um, because they don't have the character that I'm looking for or what I feel is appropriate for that type of beer. Um, case in point is hazy IPA. I mean, geez, talk about something that has been done to death. And re- we're just talking the style, the, the style, style of hazy style and okay. how it has evolved. Um, I mean, <laughs> you know, we're widely credited with, originating that um which right. which is funny because for years we were thrown under the bus for creating hazy yep. beer uh because we were bucking the trend that was a, the widely accepted presentation of ipa um it was an uphill climb trying to educate people on what i was trying to achieve um it quickly and 
extremely quickly went past that point of acceptance and into a new realm where it is today. Um, into the realm of, I'm going to put as many hops as I can into this. I'm going to reduce the bitterness at all costs. And I'm going to jack up the sweetness. And it appeals to a very specific demographic of drinker that a bitter beer is too much for them. Make it soft and sweet, and then I'll drink it. Which, in my opinion, you know, is hardly shouldn't even really technically be called IPA. I mean, a, a nice firm bitterness and mineral character, in my opinion, is kind of what defines an IPA. But to discount an entire trend and all the people that enjoy it, I mean, that's that's crazy. Uh, again, it comes back to if it if you like it, who am I? To say you shouldn't like that. If you're enjoying it, keep enjoying it. I don't care. You know, uh, it's not my bag, but whatever. Every That's why there are a zillion takes on cheeseburgers or a zillion takes on colors in, in the paint store. I mean, some people want to paint their house electric pink and they love it. Other people would never dream of doing something like that. But that's kind of what makes the world go round. And that's what makes things different and gives different people different choices. Uh, but that's also part of what drives us to just stay nice and small and be who we are and unapologetically be who we are. And we don't have to pretend we don't have to follow trends. A well-made anything will never go out of style. Uh, too much of anything, then you're talking about a different thing. You're talking about the world of business and sustainability and all of those things. Um, but basically, you know, that's why this stuff exists, uh, because all palettes are not created equal. Well, that's it for part one of our conversation with John and you'll get part two next week on Wednesday back here on Crafted. And I assure you that part two is no less interesting. So we look forward to catching you here for that. And then I just want to say thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. Thanks to you for listening. And if you have been enjoying these conversations on Crafted, I would love to ask you to leave us a rating or review. It just helps more people find the show. And anyway, yeah, I'm excited to see you back here next week for part two. Take care, everybody. <laughs>